0: Hello and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry, And I'm Charles Hecker.
1: And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business.
0: Chuck, last time we recorded this podcast, we were talking about the fact that we would be in the studio for the next one. And here we are.
1: Claudine, I feel like I'm on the deck of the Starship (laughs) Enterprise. In addition to the overall quite pleasant sensation, really, of coming back into the office after a prolonged absence, our producer Sam Tornio has set up a fantastic recording studio, and it's great to be giving it its inaugural spin.
0: It really is. It's wonderful to be sat here with you, Chuck, and our wonderful producer, Sam. It does feel a bit like the first day of a new school year, that little buzz of being back somewhere again for the first time in a while. Been anywhere else exciting the last couple of weeks, Chuck, apart from back into the office?
1: Claudine, if that's some sort of hint at domestic travel, then you must be thinking about the Prime Minister Boris Johnson. While most of us are primarily still stuck at home, Prime Minister has been down to Cornwall where he hosted the G7.
0: I was also not at the seaside, Chuck, but I did enjoy watching the G7 unfold. I always feel a bit conflicted about these sorts of events and the show that's put on.
1: Claudine, it's probably impossible to get seven of the world's most powerful people together without a bit of pageantry. But this G7 had a lot of work to do.
2: Boris really wanted to use the G7 as an opportunity to show Britain is still very much a friend of EU partners and partners from around the world, but also showing that the UK is, is going out on its own way.
1: That's Alexandra Kellard, a senior analyst based in London who looks after the UK and parts of Europe. It's very simple. Biden went to Europe to say
3: America is back. He said it several times a day. US partners and allies said it. And it was repeated in the media here in the U.S. and abroad. So that was the key message. And on that account, I think Biden probably delivered.
0: And that's Jonathan Wood, principal based in our Washington, D.C. office.
1: You know, the G7, generally speaking, it runs roughshod. Over the host town it costs a fortune and when it's over most people promptly forget about it but for both of you as keen observers of all of the players who were on this stage at the end of the weekend did the g7 make the global geopolitical environment any better for business
2: the brief answer is no not really but it also certainly didn't make things any worse I think it it symbolically shows that global leaders are are potentially getting back to something more like normality and that that can maybe trigger more normality in the business environment over the coming year but in terms of concrete outcomes I think for for business it was quite limited potentially some of the things around green investment might be interesting for for business in the long run but I think broadly speaking it was more about setting a tone rather than about concrete positives for business. Now, I might slightly
3: disagree because it was within 48 hours of the G7 that the US and EU sort of settled a long running trade deal. And so while I completely agree that there weren't very many concrete outcomes for business, I think Sandra's point that the alignment itself is something that de-risks especially a transatlantic business environment that during the Trump administration was extremely fraught where we had and still have to this day. Trade disputes, divergence over things like sanctions, those have come together more between the US and Europe under the Biden administration. And I think the G7 sort of reinforced that alignment.
1: Jonathan, what about the global minimum tax?
3: Yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, the G7 endorsed this agreement that their finance ministers had made prior to the summit to pursue a global minimum corporate tax and take measures to prevent tax avoidance and evasion. I think the agreement in principle is a big step forward. That's certainly our view and one that will, if and how implemented, have significant implications for business. But of course, as with all things G7, there is a question about that implementation, about the details, and about any carve-outs that, let's say, individual member states or other countries might pursue from that type of arrangement.
2: That's right, Jonathan. And I think the UK is is a good example of of a potential where, even though they enthusiastically signed up to the agreement, very quickly afterwards, there was talk that they'd be looking for a carve-out on financial services. And then in Europe more broadly, even though the the three EU members of the G7 obviously signed up to it, I think we'll see pushback from EU members like Ireland, who have made use of lower tax models to really boost their economies. So I certainly don't think it's a completely done deal at the moment.
1: Zandra, Jonathan, the G7 brings together some of the world's most powerful democracies. Have they done anything to polish the brand of democracy around the world?
3: Well, this is probably the central or one of the central pillars of Biden's foreign policy, and that is to make democracy promotion, human rights, and values central to how the U.S. conducts itself. And Biden is very keen to unite democratic, liberal, capitalist countries through the G7, through other fora, in pursuit of shared goals. And those include things like trade reform. But of course, and the focus of this G7 was also strategic competition with China.
0: So is that the context in which we should see the G7 commitment to a build back better world initiative, Jonathan?
3: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one of the headline outcomes of the summit was an agreement to invest collectively as democratic countries in things like infrastructure, in green energy, to compete more effectively with China's own investments in those things, especially in the developing and emerging worlds.
1: Sandra, you've authored a piece for controlrisks.com on global Britain. It's not very easy being a global country these days, is it? What is global Britain? Do you know?
2: I have some ideas about it and I think so do a lot of people in in British politics, but I don't think anyone can really define exactly what global Britain means. And I think to an extent that is sort of the point of the term because it can mean different things to different people. So if you want the UK to still be a, a kind of genuine global player and get out there and do trade deals and cooperate in forums like the G7, then it works there. But it also works if you actually want to kind of slightly return to a more reticent foreign policy, but actually try and engage on Britain's own terms, which some would argue that it wasn't able to as a member of the EU. Others would argue that actually it was perfectly capable of doing that.
1: Is global Britain going to be easier for companies that want to invest in the UK or partner up with UK-based companies?
2: I think that's part of the long-term aims, but we're only very much at the beginning of this process, and and we're not necessarily seeing very much in terms of concrete outcomes. One of the key parts of global Britain has been pursuing trade deals. And while the UK has rolled over a lot of the deals that it had as a member of the EU, it's really only kind of starting to take baby steps in terms of new trade deals. We've seen this week the first of those big new trade deals with Australia, but even that has very limited positives for businesses.
0: I have a habit of bringing the conversation back to the pandemic, at which point Chuck always looks a little bit concerned.
1: Do I need to put my mask on?
0: <laughs> the G7 committed to providing more vaccines for lower-income countries, but the pledge that they made was comparatively small. What do you see as the geopolitical implications of that? There the doesn't seem to have been a huge amount of will or intent to commit to any more ambitious pledges with respect to helping bring the pandemic to an end on a global scale?
2: I think it's interesting that here in the UK, we've seen former Prime Minister Gordon Brown really berating the the lack of ambition and, and basically saying that essentially at least 10 times the level of vaccines being donated would be needed to have any real impact. The UK has been heavily criticised by the EU and by other parts of the world for pushing ahead with its own vaccination programme while having a very limited input on sharing those vaccines globally. We've got the conversation now about whether the UK moves on to vaccinating the under-18s rather than sending vaccines abroad. So I think it's difficult for the UK to have, have kind of presented this as a big win when you look at what it's actually doing in concrete terms.
3: I mean, from the U.S. side, I don't think this deal is all bad. I understand the criticism, but the Biden administration is very cautious. It tends to set smaller scale, very achievable goals to avoid that sort of awkward situation of setting a really big objective and completely missing it. And the goals that they've set for themselves might fall short of demand or expectations, but they are very likely to be achievable. And one thing that has also happened with this administration is as those objectives and targets are hit, they've also increased them to be more ambitious. So we might see that going forward. The second thing about this administration is also that, you know, unlike perhaps some prior democratic administrations, it is much more cautious about the US role in the world. And Biden's foreign policy is domestic policy are geared towards, first and foremost, the situation at home, improving outcomes for American families. And politically, they have to be very careful about ensuring that those domestic constituencies are taken care of before the US makes really big commitments on the international stage.
1: We'll come back to our conversation with Sandra and Jonathan in just a moment. But if you're enjoying the Global Insight and haven't visited controlrisks.com, you're missing out. Every week, we're adding new insights to help companies and investors better understand what's going on in the world.
0: We've just launched our 2021 Capacity to Combat Corruption Index, which looks at the fight against corruption in Latin America and what it means for business. Now back to our discussion about the G7 Summit, just finished in Cornwall.
1: Zandra, Cornwall is known for a specific dish known as the Cornish pasty. But can we talk about sausage for a second? There was a major kind of tete-a-tete on the sides of the G7 between Boris Johnson and French President Emmanuel Macron.
2: So this all relates to the the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, which governs how Northern Ireland fits into the post-Brexit relationship between the UK and the EU. And essentially what that agreement says is that the UK has to impose checks on meat products traveling between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, because then they essentially enter the customs area. However, the UK government has refused to bring those checks in. And this has essentially led to a big row between the UK and the EU over how stringently the Northern Ireland Protocol should be applied. Emmanuel Macron, in the end, actually said he didn't want to talk about sausage, but it was there overshadowing, I think, a lot of the the conversations at the G7. And I think this is really the problem for the UK in in positioning itself as a global leader at the moment, is that if their partners are saying that they can't trust them to follow through on on what they've signed up to, I think it makes it very difficult for the UK to then position itself as an honest broker.
0: Another issue that is top of mind at the moment is climate change. Global Britain, of course, will be in the spotlight towards the end of the year hosting COP26. What was agreed on climate change at the G7 and how does it set us up for further international diplomacy on this subject?
3: So the G7 essentially reiterated its prior commitments, both to significantly reduce emissions, uh, in this case, by half, by 2030, to conserve a significant proportion of the global commons and to mobilize $100 billion in climate finance. But the criticism of those commitments has always been, show me the money. And it so far hasn't materialized at the levels that developing countries and those that are more exposed to climate change really need to see.
2: And again, this is one of those issues that Boris Johnson really wanted to push and he wanted to make the UK a global leader in in climate change policy. But on the domestic front, we've yet to see that turned into policies. And so I think it was very difficult for the UK to really push much further than this at the summit. As you say, Claudine, the UK will be hosting COP26. So there's about five months for there to be further progress on this. And I think we'll see a lot more attention on that in the UK.
3: And that's actually a really good and applicable point to the U.S. as well, because this G7 summit occurred against the backdrop of essentially negotiations over Biden's climate proposals in the U.S. Congress. You know, U.S. commitments will only be as good in large part as the legislation that Democrats can push through a very narrowly divided Congress. And at this point, and as those G7 talks were going on, it's very unclear what might remain in the deal, but it looks as though some of the very large investments that Biden wants to make in things like clean energy are certainly on the chopping block.
1: I want to circle back for a second to a comment that Jonathan made about democracy building and the Biden agenda. And and Zandra, I remember when you first started writing about the UK hosting the G7, wasn't there a move to make this? the D10, and that this was supposed to be a major democratization effort or a showcase for democracy. And I'm sort of wondering what happened to that on two fronts. The first one is, is whether you think, as Jonathan does, that, that this was you know, a, a sort of bandstand for democracy. And, and secondly, there were seven countries and then four invited guests and i'm wondering how we get a D10 when there were actually 11 different countries not to mention the european union as well
2: yes things went very quiet on the the D10 possibly because the uk decided that actually if it was going to be anything it was going to be a D11 rather than a D10 i think another issue was that there were potentially questions asked about whether it was the best thing to be sort of trumpeting necessarily these additional countries as, as the the ones to demonstrate attachment to democracy. As you say, there were additional invitees to the G7, but there was very little attention paid to it. And really, this idea seems to have been pushed to one side. To which I might add, Biden
3: still very much intends to hold a sort of broader summit of democracies at some point, which would, you know, expand the aperture maybe even beyond the the D11. So, you know, early on there was a sense that maybe the UK didn't want to step on Biden's toes in that regard, but it's not off the agenda. It's it's very much still part of what the US intends and wants to accomplish, which is to strengthen ties among like-minded countries in order to better compete with China. Our senior global issues analyst Joe Smith has been analyzing the G7. And he makes the point that the Build Back Better World initiative is the G7's belt and road. This is a concerted emphasis to compete with China in this area of infrastructure
1: and climate-friendly investment. Are the US and the EU on the same page when it comes to China?
2: Not 100%. So the EU is certainly moving a bit closer to the US position in recent months. But certainly we don't see them fully signing up to the US position. You know, it was only less than six months ago that the EU signed an investment treaty with China that has been sidelined because of opposition within the European Parliament. But I think at government level within the EU, there are still many who want to be very cautious about how they proceed in terms of relations with China and who genuinely want to keep Chinese investment coming into Europe.
1: Frankly, Zandra, you sort of see the same thing when it comes to investment from Russia, and that is that the EU wants to carve out a slightly more independent path from that of the US. Uh, We should note that while we're recording this session, President Vladimir Putin and President Biden are meeting in Geneva. Expectations are ground floor or even basement low as to what might come out of that meeting. But Zandra, I have a feeling we're going to have you back shortly.
2: Yes, that's certainly one to watch. There's lots going on. And you're right. Again, I think when we talk about the EU, it's it's very important to remember that it is, of course, a grouping of, of 27 countries, each of which has its own very different priorities when it comes to both China and Russia. And so it's difficult to say that they speak with one voice and that complicates relations between the EU and Russia. And yes, it will certainly remain to be seen how things carry on in the next few weeks and months.
3: Cyber was certainly a focus of this G7 summit following these very high profile attacks on critical infrastructure in the US, which it attributed to actors based in Russia or the former Soviet space. That's undoubtedly likely to be one of the major talking points for the Biden-Putin meeting, but it's also one, and I think it's inclusion in G7 discussions That just indicates the changing nature of the risk landscape. You know, there was very little discussion of terrorism, which has been a key feature of G7s for the last five to 10 years. And instead, the focus has shifted to cyber, which for every business in our conversations with clients and certainly in what survey data indicate is one of their top operational, financial, reputational, and security risk issues. This is one area where, you know, the the U.S. and Europe do align as venues that are relatively asymmetrically exposed or or vulnerable to cyber threats. One of the Biden administration's key objectives is to sort of knit together its allies and partners into standards and security protocols and auditing procedures on cybersecurity.
1: It's interesting to see these meetings evolve away from counting warheads to sort of counting servers. And the shift from conventional weaponry to cyber weaponry is one of the more remarkable developments in these in these bilateral meetings.
3: Yeah. And it's important to remember that the G7 is primarily, at least traditionally, an economic and monetary policy talking shop. I mean, to include issues like democracy and climate change and a few of these other things that, that they're now concerned with is a significant expansion of the agenda beyond just preserving a stable macroeconomic environment.
0: And I suppose that speaks to the fact that this is a grouping of states which is far less globally significant from an economic perspective now.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And where also some of their economic interests have perhaps diverged in recent years.
1: But that changing agenda, Zandra, is that the emergence of an EU foreign policy?
2: Well, the EU would like people to think that there's an emerging EU foreign policy. This current European Commission has wanted to present itself as a geopolitical commission. But I think what we're really seeing in, in practical terms is that it's it's what I have previously said, which is that when you have 27 countries each with their own foreign policy, it's actually very difficult and time-consuming to agree on foreign policy. And we're seeing that in things like how difficult it is to agree on sanctions and really just the EU being always kind of one step behind other countries or countries that are, are acting independently in terms of responding to foreign policy issues.
0: Sanctions. Let's just touch on that before we wrap up our discussion. Jonathan, what was discussed and how do you see what was agreed on sanctions?
3: Yeah, so the Biden administration has been keen to increase coordination with allies and partners on sanctions. And I think we've seen the G7 emerge as a key venue for that coordination on Belarus, on Myanmar, and on statements regarding other issues, including in places like Ethiopia. So, you know, at this meeting, it's part and parcel of the alignment agenda where, you know, the goal is to bring some of their geopolitical, but also regulatory initiatives onto the same page. And for business, you know, in some cases, that might make life a bit easier because the sanctions regimes will be more closely aligned and easier to comply with. They won't diverge as much. But it also means, I think, that we might see the G7 or G7 countries rather, and some of their close allies and partners, including members of that first wall, D11, take a more active role in economic and financial sanctions activities.
0: Jonathan, we know you're writing a piece on sanctions that's going to appear on our website very soon. So we'll look out for that with great interest. Jonathan, thank you. And to you too, Zandra. Great to have you on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Absolutely.
2: Thanks, Claudine and Chuck.
1: That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts.
0: And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world.
1: You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now.
0: And goodbye from me.